page 1004, end of Hebrews 6. We're going to look at verses 13 through 20 this morning. One of the things that we talk a lot about here at Trinity, if you've been around for a while, is the way in which the gospel uh, gathers us together to God's self and into God's family and then sends us out. Uh, And isn't it awesome that this morning we got to see both of those things on display, that in membership, God gathering us together and then giving us a heart for people who are on the other side of the world, just as God went out from his self to redeem a people for himself that were far away. So we then are sent out. Um, So there it was, the gospel on display before you. I don't even feel like I have to give a sermon this morning because you saw it already in membership and in missions. But anyway, uh, no, we're going to preach this morning. Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. Let me read this passage for us. The writer of the Hebrews says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we do pray that even now, as we come to this word of comfort, uh, that you would come by your spirit and show us more deeply the promise of our Savior, Lord Jesus, so that we might be strengthened and encouraged to hold fast in these days. Lord, we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, So you probably didn't notice this, uh, but just last month, Shell Oil, the big sort of oil conglomerate, announced that they had completed the construction of the hull of what is going to be the world's largest floating vessel. Uh, They're going to call it the Prelude. I don't know why they picked that name. But when it's completed, this thing is going to be 1,600 feet long. That's actually longer than the Empire State Building is tall. It's huge. This thing is massive. Uh, And it's actually not a ship in the traditional sense. It's actually like a giant floating natural gas facility. Uh, But the, the anchorage and the moorage on this thing is apparently so strong that the prelude can withstand a Category 5 cyclone. Uh, which is the way they sort of rank tropical storms in Australia. That's where this thing is going to be. Imagine a system of anchors and moors that could keep a 1,600-foot, 600,000-ton floating vessel firm and secure in the midst of the strongest kind of hurricane that there is. Incredible. 
Uh, now, before Shell Oil decided to build this monstrosity, uh, the biggest vessel, the longest vessel before that was something appropriately called Seawise Giant. That was the name of the longest boat before they built the prelude. Uh, 430 plus meters long. And it too had a massive anchor. It's actually on display in the Hong Kong Maritime Museum. This anchor for this ship weighed 36 tons. That's 72,000 pounds. Or by my calculations, about 900 middle school boys the size of this anchor. Uh. Now it's obvious why a ship needs an anchor, right? Anchors are there for stability, for security. So that when the currents pick up and the tides shift or the winds start to rise, you don't drift out to sea or you don't crash into the rocks on the shore so that you can stay firm in the midst of the dangerous seas. And verse 19 of our passage today speaks about an anchor that is sure and steadfast. But this isn't an anchor for a ship. It's an anchor for the soul. And that very idea raises an incredibly important question for each one of us as we come to our passage this morning. And the question it causes us to ask is this. What exactly is it that anchors my life? After all, your soul is just that. It's the central part of your personality. It's it's your identity. It's you. It's your life. Your soul. And when the storms rise and when the winds blow and when the currents move, what keeps you from drifting? And what keeps you from going under? Because make no mistake, you will try and I will try to anchor my life on something. It's unavoidable. We will always moor our sense of self, our identity, our purpose to something. So it causes us to think, what have I tried to use to anchor my life? What's the thing I think will keep me secure and resilient and strong when the storms come? For some of us, we've tried to make our career our anchor. We think as long as I'm successful and respected in my field, as long as things are going well in my professional life, then I'll be safe and strong in the storms. But of course, we know that the problem is, what if you're no longer able to be successful? What if through a turn of events, you can no longer do your work through a disability or through a change in the markets? Or through a change in intellectual fads? What if your work is no longer seen as relevant? What if the storms of life end your career? What then will happen to your soul? So then for some of us, we've tried making a relationship an anchor. As long as I have this person in my life, we think, then I'll be steadfast. Haven't you heard it said sometimes, this person's my rock? But again, what if the storms take that person away? What if the relationship ends? What then becomes of our soul? What then keeps us from drifting or sinking beneath the waves? So some of us, not wanting to anchor our lives in anything external and changing outside of us, have tried to make personal integrity our anchor, something inside of us. We think as long as I'm a person of values, of principles, as long as I do what is right and live a moral life, 
Or as long as I follow my heart and do what I know to be true for me, a different kind of principial living, isn't it? As long as I do these things, then I'll be steadfast in the storms. Then whatever happens outside of me, the winds won't rock me, the waves won't overturn me. But you know, this turns out to be just as insecure, doesn't it? Because even then, what if you find that your best version of you still doesn't live up to your standards? No matter how hard you try, what if the storms of life start to show you that you can't always be the thoughtful, creative, caring person you wish you were? Or the moral, upright person you know you should be? It turns out even that anchor is not enough for the soul. And the list could go on and on as we consider all the faulty things that simply, that simply can't keep us secure. All the anchors that can't possibly keep our souls firm. But as we think about these things, doesn't verse, not, verse 19 of our passage come ringing out with incredibly good news? We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. There is an anchor that holds. There is something that can keep our soul secure when the storms come. And verse 18 tells us what the this is. It's the hope set before us. Of course, at first, it seems like that can't be right. How could hope be an anchor? I mean, in our common way of thinking, doesn't hope seem like one of the most ephemeral and fleeting things that there is? Isn't hope just wishful thinking? Isn't hope the word that you use when you're just not sure whether something's going to be the case, but you really like it to be anyway? Like, I really hope I get a parking spot downtown next to the restaurant we're going to because it's really cold and rainy and snowy outside. You don't know you're going to find a parking spot. You probably won't. It's New Haven, right? You've got no guarantee. So, so how could any mere hope be an anchor for my soul? Well, friends, that's where we have to see that the hope that we're speaking of here is completely different. That hope in the New Testament isn't something we merely wish will happen. No, the language of hope is what describes the certain future, the certain future of those who place their trust in Christ. In fact, the word hope, nine times out of ten in the New Testament, is almost never used as our sort of act of hoping, our subjective hoping. It's almost always used as the concrete, objective reality. And you see it here, the hope set before us. It's the thing that's there that is for us in the future that we look forward to. Friends, you see, the book of Hebrews was written to Christians who needed an anchor for their souls. They were a fledgling community for whom storms and winds have come along and it had rocked their boat. And they were almost feeling like they were lost at sea. Where do we go? What do we do? And in this section of the book, the thing, this section we've been looking at at the last two weeks, if you kind of think back, if you've been with us, the writer of the Hebrews has been telling them, press on to spiritual maturity. That was two weeks ago. And last week, what Greg showed us, keep on showing your love for the name of God in service to the saints. 
Don't let these things flag. Press on. In other words, he's been emphasizing their responsibility. But now, in this passage, he's going to show us God's provision so that we might do those things. The divine enablement so that we might press on, so that we might keep loving and show that steadfast zeal and faithful endurance and patience. And what we see here is that God has given us a sure and steadfast anchor of hope that will sustain us. And to the extent that we realize how certain that hope is, that is how resilient and secure we will be in the storms of this life. In other words, a life without hope is like a ship without an anchor. But when we have a robust sense of the hope set before us in Christ, then our lives will be enabled and strengthened and fueled to hold fast and press on no matter what comes. In other words, certain hope is the anchor that allows us to faithfully persevere. And what what the writer of the Hebrews is doing in this section is showing us how utterly and absolutely rock-solid certain our hope it truly is. And we need to know that, don't we? Because we doubt. When circumstances take a turn for the worse, we question God's promises. And we start to wonder whether the hope will really play out in the end. We start to question whether God will do what he promises he will do. But Hebrews is pointing us to something that will give us, as he says, strong encouragement to hold fast. And there are big, basically this passage falls into two halves, and this is how we're going to look at it this morning. In verses 13 through 18, we see that our hope is utterly certain because God has sworn it. And then in verses 19 through 20, we see that our hope is utterly certain because Christ has accomplished it. So that's where we're headed. So first, let's consider this first half, that God has sworn it. As you look through the first part, the first number of verses of our section, you have to admit that it's a little strange, isn't it, for God to be taking an oath. I mean, why do human beings typically swear oaths? You know? You imagine the guy with a Boston accent, I swear on my mother's grave. Why? Because the guy's probably not that trustworthy, right? He's probably not telling the truth most of the time. But now, he really wants to know, let you know that he's telling the truth. We swear oaths because we're not completely truthful and reliable. If everyone always kept their word, we wouldn't make oaths. But we aren't reliable, so we make vows that bind us to keeping our word. But God is in a totally different position, friends. We're told here in this passage that it is impossible for God to lie. When God makes a promise or gives his word, that settles it. He doesn't need to make an oath over and above that. He's perfectly faithful and truthful. And yet, here we see that God does swear an oath. And he swore an oath to Abraham. And we're told why God does this in verse 18. To show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. You see, it wasn't any weakness or unreliability in God that made him to swear this oath. 
but it was a weakness in us. God swore this oath because we are often too slow to believe God's promises and to take him at his word. Aren't we often so much quicker to believe the things that we feel rather than the things that God has said? We are programmed in our post-romantic individualistic culture to just believe our feelings. That for us is the standard of truth, isn't it? How much more quickly do we believe those things than what God has said? And yet, God knowing our weakness in utter kindness and condescension stoops and swears an oath. Swearing on himself because there's no one greater by whom to swear. Just so we will realize and get it that he means what he says. Think about that. The one that than which nothing greater can be thought, as Anselm said. The one who no one is greater. The most majestic, perfect, utterly holy God compared to which everything else is less than nothing and dust has sworn an oath to you and me on the basis of his own righteous character. And so now, there are two unchangeable things, Hebrew says, God's promise and God's oath. And if human oaths are sufficient for confirmation, as verse 16 says, how much more confirmation is it when God himself takes an oath? Answer? Infinitely so. Now, verses 13 through 15, the beginning of our section, tell us exactly what promise and which oath we're talking about. Here, Hebrews takes us back all the way to Abraham. In Genesis chapters 12 through 25, we're told Abraham's story, how God chose Abraham to be the one through whom God's blessing would come to the world. God meets Abraham, calls him out of his pagan past, and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make your name great and give you an offspring and cause your offspring to inherit the land. And through your offspring, the entire world will be blessed. But as we learn, Abraham's faith in God's promise is almost immediately put to the test. And the first test, if you'll remember the Abraham story, is that Abraham and Sarah are old and childless. And they remain that way for some years, even after God has given them this wonderful promise. And at one point, Abraham even cries out to God and says, Oh Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. But even in Abraham's wrestling to trust God's promises, God continues to confirm his promises to him. In chapter 15, God tells Abraham that his descendants will be like the number of the stars. And again in 17, God says to Abraham, your offspring will come and will inherit the land. And though he's not perfect through all this, Abraham patiently waits and at last receives a son, Isaac, 
He endures and finally obtains what was promised. But then a second test comes. And this one, seemingly unthinkable. Isaac has been born and God tells Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son that he loves. And Abraham, in us, in a way that seems utterly incomprehensible, in faith, takes God at his word. Believing, as Hebrews will later said, that God can still keep his promise, even if it means raising Isaac from the dead. But as soon as Abraham raises the knife, an angel stops him and provides a ram instead. And it's at that point, the climax of the Abraham story in the Bible, that God issues the oath that we read here in Hebrews 6.14. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. That's how this section starts that was quoted here. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. So what are we to make of all this? This going back to Abraham. Now on the one hand I think it's this. Hebrews Hebrews here is telling us the story of Abraham to encourage us that with God's promises it is possible to faithfully persevere even through the most trying circumstances. You see, even when old age and infertility come crashing in like storms into Abraham's life and even when God threatens to take away the thing that you hold most precious even then his promises can cause us to stand firm in our trust. We are not without an anchor. After all, verse 12, right before our section, says, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And here is Abraham, a great exemplar of trust. If Abraham can do it, then by God's grace and with God's promises, he will enable us to do it as well. And isn't it true that knowing that others have run the race set before us, And it's a great encouragement to us to persevere and to press on. But you know, there's more going on than just that. It's more than just Abraham as example. Hebrews is bringing us back to this promise and oath made to Abraham. Not just so that we can see Abraham's example, but more importantly, because this oath and because this promise were made for our sake. Isn't that abundantly clear from verses 17 and 18? You see, when God swore on oath to bless Abraham and to multiply him, to make his family as numerous as the stars in the sky, he was looking ahead, not merely to those who would be Abraham's physical descendants, but ultimately to those who would be his spiritual descendants through faith. You see, think of it this way. When God took Abraham out of his tent in his moment of weakness and doubt, took him out of his tent and said, Abraham, look at the stars. Can you count them? That is what I'm going to do through you and through your seed. Friends, when he was pointing at those stars, he was pointing at you and me and all of those who have placed their trust in Christ. That was the promise, after all, that in you all the nations will be blessed, that your family will span the nations. Paul puts it this way in Galatians. He says, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. 
It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Right here in Hebrews. So that the heirs of the promise might have a strong encouragement to hold fast. So friends, we are the recipients of this oath-bound promise as well. And Christ's promise is for us. And what is the hope that this oath guarantees? What is it that God has so deeply condescended and sworn to us that he'll give us? It's that we will live eternally under God's blessing and not under his curse. Surely, I will bless you. And of course, this blessing doesn't mean material prosperity or a life of comfort and ease here and now. It's not that. The very fact fact that we need an anchor presupposes that the life of faith is going to be hard. No. God's blessing is much more profound And much more satisfying than any material possession. Because you see, to receive God's blessing is to be counted righteous in his sight. And to be adopted into his family. That when Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That the same is true for all who share the faith of Abraham. This hope that we have, this hope of God's eternal blessing is to know that your future will be one, not of God's just condemnation and judgment for your sin, but one of his acceptance and one of his freedom forever. And friend, without that hope that God says, I will bless you and nothing will remove it. Without that hope, you won't survive the storms of this life. Because without that hope, the hope of blessing, the hope of righteousness, you will always wonder in hard times when things do not go your way, you will always question whether or not God is punishing you or angry at you or abandoning you and what it is that you have done to turn God's favor against you. When the winds come raging, you will question his fatherly love for you and you will live in guilt and doubt and uncertainty nearly all your days. But here is his promise and his oath, two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. His promise and his oath, I will surely bless you. And that is an anchor for the soul, friends. That his judgment has been satisfied in Christ. That in him you are accepted as a child. Verse 18 describes believers as those who have fled for refuge. Have fled from sin and self-righteousness. And fled to God's mercy and grace in Christ. And if that's true of you. If you have fled for refuge to the Son. Then God's promise and oath made thousands of years ago to Abraham and to everyone of faith since then is for you. And he will never change his mind. And he will never go back on his word. 
He will never renege his promises or decide one day that bets are off. No. It's impossible for him to do so. His purpose is unchangeable. So what makes our hope in Christ an anchor for the soul? What gives it such certainty? First, Hebrews says, the fact that God has sworn it. And God cannot lie. Second, the fact that Christ has accomplished it. Look again at verses 19 through 20. And try to follow the metaphors here as we read. Picture it in your mind. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Isn't this strange and bizarre language when you first read it? Aren't anchors meant to be sunk into the depths of the sea? And yet here Hebrews is telling us that this anchor as weighty and as deep and as immovable as God's oath, has been taken and driven into the heart of heaven. Never to be moved. You see where this anchor has taken hold? He says it's the inner place behind the curtain. And that was a way of speaking about the temple or the tabernacle, which inside was basically two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place. And there was a big, thick curtain and veil in between them. And in the holy place, the first room, the outer room, there was some incense and there were some lamps and there was some bread and the priests went in there a bunch and prayed and did their thing. But in the most holy place, one person went once a year on the Day of Atonement. That place was representational of the very presence of God. Friends, that room was a symbol of heaven on earth, of God's dwelling place in the midst And not just that, but as we'll see in Hebrews coming up, that that room was a picture of the future. When God would dwell with his people and be all in all in the new heavens and the new earth. So you see, figuratively, Hebrews is saying that in the true temple of God's presence, our anchor of hope has been driven into God's presence and into his future. Friends, don't you see that there is an unshakable and an unbreakable connection between us and the intimate fellowship and communion with God that you were created for? That what Christ is and offers to us is that very thing that your soul longs for, to know and to be known by God in an immediate way To have the veil between you and God's presence finally opened so that your true self can emerge in the light of God's glory. In verse 20, we're told how our anchor comes to be driven there. And it's because of Jesus. Because he has gone ahead of us on our behalf as our forerunner, he says. Which is a beautiful image. It's actually an image from the military, or from athletics, this idea of a forerunner. It was the captain who went ahead of the rest, blazing the way, leading the way, carving out the path 
through danger and harm so that all those who are His could come streaming in His path and follow surely behind. You see, friends, because Christ is our forerunner on our behalf, because He has gone through death and into God's presence in the resurrected life, that all those who are united to Him by faith are guaranteed that we too will share in that destiny. That our captain, that our king has gone before us securing the path that will bring us into God's presence. You see, he has taken it there. In some sense, as you read this passage, isn't it clear that this anchor and this hope are they Christ himself? As the metaphors start to spin and turn in this passage, isn't the anchor Jesus who has gone and planted himself in the Father's presence on our behalf as our forerunner and as our high priest? And because Christ is there, I too will be there. That it's finished? That it's done? That he is there and so I shall be? Now what's, what's coming up in Hebrews as we look forward to the winter and spring and where we're headed in this series. In some sense, friend, this passage that we're at right now is setting the stage. In verses 7, 8, 9, 10, in some sense, Hebrews is saying, buckle your seatbelt because I'm going to show you how secure this hope actually is. I'm going to show you how rock solid the work of Christ is for you so that nothing will shake you. It's secure and it's sufficient. That's where we're going. But right now, as we finish up this morning, just think, friend, if you've placed your trust in Christ, then what your future holds, according to this passage, is fellowship and intimacy, intimacy with God forever. That though storms rage now, there is perfect peace to come and depths of delight like you cannot imagine. That those sorrow, as the psalmist says, may last for the night. Joy comes in the morning. That when the wind and the waves finally cease, our ships will be brought safely home into the harbor. And if that is true, what sacrifice or what hardship couldn't you face with courage now? What difficulty or change in circumstances couldn't you face with courage if you knew for sure that the morning held the sunrise of God's new creation and that you would be a part of it because Christ has paid for your sins and gone as a forerunner on your behalf? What wouldn't you be able to withstand, endure, go through if you knew that was ahead of you? Even if your career were wrecked on the storms of life and you lost everything that you had worked for during your professional life, that like so many great academic books, they end up as doorstops and giveaway boxes in front of people's offices and all the things that we labored for just end up being dust. Or even if close relationships gave way And friends betrayed you. 
and a spouse never came. And even if your self-image, that pristine picture of yourself that you try so hard to keep up, even if that got shattered on the reality of your heart, you could endure the fiercest storms, the most brutal winds because you have an anchor. Jesus Christ, who has taken hold of you in all your sin and selfishness and gone as a forerunner on your behalf into God's future, into God's presence. You know, in the tomb of some of the earliest Christians in Rome, you can actually go visit them. One is called the Catacombs of Priscilla. If you go there, uh, and you see a few hundred years, actually, of, of Christian leaders and Christian martyrs, and even just loved ones sort of buried there down in the depths, underneath the earth in secrecy. And you know what you find over and over again painted on those tombs? One image, again and again and again and again. An anchor. An anchor. Over this tomb and this tomb and this tomb of believers. The anchor. You see, they're there as a declaration of hope. As a defiant claim in the face of death. In the face of Rome. In the face of anything that stands against us. That our hope in Christ is sure and steadfast. And not even death can rock us from our destiny in Christ. Because our forerunner has gone before us. And our place in the presence of God is secure. So you see, friends, our hope, the hope that will maintain our souls, is sure because God has sworn it and because Jesus has accomplished it. And if you hold fast to that, no matter what storms you face, you will persevere. And in the morning, joy. Let's pray. Father, help us to see the certainty of the hope before us. That our Lord and Savior shed his own blood to secure for us. God, that your oath, your covenant, your blood support us in the whelming flood. That when all around our strength gives way. You are all our hope and stay. Lord, that our anchor holds within the veil. God, for my brothers and sisters here this morning who are wrestling with doubts and fears and uncertainties, for whom the storms of life have been raging and pounding, Lord, would you support them this morning? Help them to see the anchor of Christ in their life. And Lord, for those who do not know you, who've been trying to find an anchor to support them and have found it to be bankrupt, God, open their eyes to take hold of Christ, the one anchor that will not fail. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we're going to sing a song that picks up all these themes of this passage, and you'll hear them. We're going to sing this as a great declaration of our hope in Christ. So let's stand and let's celebrate what we have in him.